Hello all and a warm welcome to the latest instalment of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, North Wales' leading one person and his cat spare room based true crime show that tries to seek out cases that won't be familiar to the listener, ones that are uncovered by other shows, cases of terror and horror that will shred hearts and chill you to the bone, sometimes stretch belief also, that I've sought from all across the UK and Ireland to bring in my own style to you guys. Doing this is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You folks are the very kind enthusiasts who keep the library building and the keys tapping by tuning in as you do. I think each and every one of you is fabulous and I'm glad to have you joining me for an episode that if you're hearing it, I hope you and your loved ones are all good and you're all well. So, and if you saw a recent thread on the show's Facebook discussion group page, then I'll explain why I'm saying this, because someone kindly pointed this out or asked a question. I'm never trying to set any kind of record for how long it takes me to begin the story this week or any week at all. And if I do do a bit of preamble beforehand, then it's for a couple of reasons. Firstly, expressing my gratitude towards you kind lot who listen in and who kindly support the show is something I would never dream of neglecting each time. I wasn't dragged up or anything. I do that first and foremost because there isn't a show without you, simple as that. And that takes as long as it takes. I'm scrimping on nothing there. And secondly, it does actually help doing the housekeeping bit. And it's a great term that is. I like that, the housekeeping bit. It helps doing it at the start for a couple of reasons. I get to put forward the sincere thanks for my returning and new Patreon supporters and to shout them out, which this week goes to Jew Harper, Mark Clements and Jackie, who's opted to annually support the show. I also get to recommend how easy and value for money it is supporting the show in such a way by saying that you too can join these guys and others in hearing episodes such as Horrors Over the Holidays, Obsession by the Sea or Operation Magnesium to name just a few quicker than a Weatherspoons will fill up come the day pubs can reopen after lockdown, and easier than betting on what outfit Homer Simpson will have on each day. By just heading over to the Patreon site and seeking out the show and with its full title on there, or by using the link that I always place into the contact details of the episode show notes. By doing this and other bits, so not only have I accomplished that, but by now I'm settled into my narrative for recording also. So there is method in what I do. I don't just preamble bollocks at the start for the sake of it. This is exactly what I'm like. I don't have a show persona or anything. It's just me and me mic and we just crack on with it. But it was pointed out to me in feedback in the form of a post. So I thank him for that. And I thought I'd just address it to clarify. And oh look, I've managed to do all of those by way of the explanation too. Boom. So many thanks to everyone who's gotten in touch. Not to clarify how record-breaking my pre-case waffle is, but to feedback about the previous episode of the show, Scarred. Now, it was a truly horrendous case to have covered, that one was. But in Andreas, there was a story I'm certainly glad that I could bring to you, and sharing an account of someone so positive, bearing in mind the horrors that he's been through, well, some stuff is a privilege to be able to cover, and Andreas's and his family's tale certainly was which I tried to do in the most sensitive way that I could. Your feedback concerning it has been very positive indeed, so thank you for the kind shares, the comments and the thoughts that you've given all. I'm hoping that the episode this week, which is a hard listen, I do warn you, brings the same from you, which we shall get onto shortly, just in case anybody's timing this or anything. 
No, I'm just joshing. I'm pleased to say also that in a couple of weeks' time, you'll be able to catch me and Adam, the host of the UK True Crime podcast, having a conversation on Crowdcast that you guys can join in with should you wish to. Now, I said last episode how Adam is a busy soul, to say the least. Well, I neglected to mention that he has a series of these totally free online get-togethers coming up with an array of great guests. I know that author Peter Blexley is the first such featured guest. Mike from Murder Mile will feature on there soon. And I believe there may be several other high-profile ones also to be announced. So watch this space. But he approached me some weeks back to see if I wanted to take part in this when he mentioned it. And I was more than happy to. I think it'll be great fun. It'll be a bit of a chat. And I believe that we'll then throw open the floor for some questions from you guys. You can catch us on March the 4th for this at 7.30pm UK time and I'll announce further details as I know them myself. So I'll go and start getting my backdrop staged and sorted for it right away, you know? Putting some highbrow books up and taking down me issues of Razzle and Viz. No, I'm just messing about. But that's a couple of weeks away yet and before holding court with another host, I have a show of my own and a series to crack on with. So enough nonsense, and in the words of my beloved Stone Roses, I feel my needle hit the groove. This time around then, on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, brings a horrific tale. But when are they ever like the bloody Mr. Men stories on here, I ask you. And it does involve the death of a child. Now I have sanitised the details somewhat. It's not something I take any pleasure in describing at all. And it's a case that will horrify, break your heart, anger you, and for those of you listening who are parents, will make you want to keep your children that bit closer to you. The episode contains details and descriptions, including offences of a sexual nature against and the murder of a child that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always, please use discretion whilst you're listening in here. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode I've entitled Every Parent's Nightmare. For our tale this time around, we're off to a place we've visited a couple of times before on the show, the county of Lancashire in the northwest of the UK, and to its administrative centre, the city of Preston. Now I did better with the wiki stats and triv this time around than I did last episode, folks. Preston can boast famous people hailing from there, such as, well, he's not famous really, but he is a legend. Legendary charlatans fan and obsessive music collector and friend of mine, Dolly Blue. Leading industrial revolution entrepreneur, Richard Arkwright. Radio 1 DJ and music journalist, Marianne Hobbs. Creator of Wallace and Gromit and Shaun the Sheep, Nick Park. And former cricketer, TV presenter, Top Gear host and notorious pisshead, Andrew Freddy Flintoff. It can also claim that it's the first place in the UK to open a KFC store in 1965. It's the location of the UK's first motorway, the Preston Bypass, which later became part of Britain's most dreaded, the M6. It has the longest row of old-style red public telephone boxes anywhere in the country on its Market Street, and a plaque remains at the spot at Preston's Fishwick Hall Golf Club, where on the 5th of August 2000, Alan Schofield broke the world record for the longest putt ever, at 166 feet 8 inches. Though this has since been beaten, it's reported, and it's got to be by Happy Gilmore that, hasn't it? 
But my favourite bit of triv this time around is that it's in Preston where the word teetotal stems from, derived from a speech made in 1832 there by Richard Turner, a follower of Joseph Livesey, who had started the temperance movement there in the same year. Because the followers of the movement were required to sign a pledge of total abstinence, Turner, who unfortunately had a speech impediment, was so impassioned during his speech urging total abstinence from all alcohol, that rather than just urging the abstinence of spirits, he remarked, they must insist upon TTT total abstinence. Hence the origin of the word teetotal. Bet you'll all sleep better tonight knowing that, won't you? Preston's town centre ward is comprised of the communities of Frenchwood and Avonham, multicultural and varying parts of the city containing some of its oldest streets that have long been established as populous communities due to the mix of still remaining back-to-back terraced and low-income housing and both new-build and old-style high-rise flats. Now it's unfair to call it a complete concrete jungle, however, as both communities skirt the River Ribble, which flows westward from the Yorkshire Dales, and are located near to two sprawling city centre Victorian-era parks, Miller Park and its adjacent, much larger, Avonham Park, which make up part of the Ribble Way National Trail. Due to the central location and the six main entrance points, with car parks and public transport points nearby to each, for many years both parks have been popular all year round. Music fans have in the past flocked to the larger Avonham Park to see bands such as Oasis, The Human League and The Inspiral Carpets perform in its natural amphitheatre. And today both are favoured places for runners, dog walkers and families enjoying the expanses of greenery, the riverside walks and woodland trails and the several events and attractions that periodically occur in the parks throughout the year. Now places such as these are always popular with children aren't they? And back in the 1980s, in what really wasn't, yet seemed to be a safer time, parks such as these were filled with kids playing games, enjoying themselves on the play parks, or making their own fun. If you were anything like me and my mates back in the day, you'd be there reenacting the latest episode of the A-Team, or playing fox and hounds, or putting up rope swings, making dens, that sort of thing. Golden times, really. And one such child who loved the park for these very reasons, and who spent a lot of his spare time there, was nine-year-old Imran Ismail Vora, a Muslim pupil of the nearby Frenchwood Community Primary School, who lived only a short distance away from the park, at number 87 James Street, where he and his family lived harmoniously amongst though what was a mix of other cultures, was predominantly at the time an Asian community. The happy-go-lucky youngster, who attended the school with his younger brother and sister, Tahir and Hafiza, was a popular boy, well regarded by his classmates and teachers alike, described as having a quick wit, sense of humour and maturity for his age that made him stand out from other pupils in his year. Qualities valued by his teachers, and as a result led to Imran becoming particularly close to his class teacher, James Vaney. His former head teacher, Elaine Cowell, later told the Lancashire Evening Post newspaper, His delightful sense of humour set him apart because you could have a joke with him in a mature way. His classmates wanted and sought his friendship because of his happy and sensible nature. A well-behaved, bright and diligent pupil, 
regularly scoring amongst the top of his class for arithmetic and English composition, Imran had a particular talent, patience and eye for creativity. Only a few days before the end of the 1985 school year, having completed a large 3D coloured mosque made out of cardboard during the Eid festival at the end of Ramadan. He had sporting prowess to level his academia, was someone who loved getting involved with and excelling in team games, as well as being a solo competitor. In the busy final weeks of the 1985 school year, Imran had performed outstandingly in the school sports day, collecting certificates for his performances in the obstacle race, as well as sprinting and high jumping. He'd also enjoyed an end-of-term school trip to Bolton Abbey in Yorkshire, where a later published photograph taken that day shows the smiling youngster stood in the thick of his many friends, smiling straight at the camera. So whilst from 9am to 3.15pm during term time, Imran took his place within the classroom with other pupils, unlike many of his other classmates from the mixed multi-ethnicity community of Frenchwood, Imran's education didn't end with the final bell, and it wasn't straight off home to watch Dungeons and Dragons or Nightmare. Do you remember those? For on several weekdays after school, Imran, his siblings and other Muslim children from the local area took extra religious studies at the Jamia Majid Clarendon Street Mosque nearby to the family home in James Street and one of, at the time, five Islamic centres that Preston had. Here, the children would be taught the principal tenets of their faith, learning teachings and passages from the Quran by heart to help them absorb and adopt a heritage that stretched back more than a thousand years and thousands of miles away from the community in which they lived. Following these studies, Imran and his siblings would then head back to the family home. So, Thursday, July the 11th, 1985 was one such day. It was just two days before Live Aid, if you were alive and you can think back that far, as it happens. The penultimate day of the penultimate week of the school year. And as the weather fluctuated between pissing down with rain in the morning and then looking like the start of The Simpsons later that afternoon, when school had finished at 3.15pm, Imran had hung back in the playground to join some of his friends having a brief game of marbles, which he would often do. Now I don't know if marbles are still as widely played today as they once were, it's perhaps more a game of yesteryear I thought, as it doesn't seem to still be a popular thing today. Or is that just me being ignorant and it is, and there's still mad marble enthusiasts out there? Anyone knows? Let me know. By 3.30pm most of the school children had left the playground and Imran and his friends were some of the last remaining stragglers. When they'd finished their game, Unusually, Imran did not walk the short distance home with his friends when asked, claiming to one of them that he was waiting for someone, though the reason, or who this was, has never been established. Regardless, Imran remained waiting by the pedestrian gate of the school, which leads onto Frenchwood Knoll, while his friends left to head back to their respective homes and pastimes. A girl who knew Imran, another straggler who was late leaving school that afternoon, recalled seeing him still stood at this gate long after everyone else had left, at 3.40pm, and as she passed him and went to walk along Frenchwood Knoll towards the intersection with Manchester Road, she heard a voice call out what she thought to be Imran. Glancing back briefly in response to this, as you do when you hear someone shout behind you, 
She was later to describe that she thought this shout had come from an Asian male in his early to mid-twenties, five foot ten to six foot tall, slim with straight black collar-length hair parted on the left side and wearing black trousers. The man was stood on Frenchwood Knoll opposite the school gates and the girl was fairly sure that Imran made steps to cross the road towards this person in response to the call. However, she then turned back and carried on with her own journey, thinking no more of this at the time. She had cause for this to return to haunt her thoughts only a few days later, which I'll explain further about following this short word from the show sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Best Fiends, which unless you live on the moon or under a rock, then you must have heard of, right? Well, it's Best Fiends that I find myself playing when I'm having some downtime from the show or the hectic pace of real life, and I found myself coming to be proper addicted to the colourful little puzzle strategy game. I like that it's challenging enough to make me take my time and try to think a couple of steps ahead before moving, yet at the same time, I like that it's fun and casual enough so that anybody will enjoy playing it. Before you know it, you'll be battering slugs, firing off missiles to blow up chests, blatting bees at hives, destroying leaves, mushrooms, there's all sorts to enjoy through the many lands of minutiae that Best Fiends has to offer, and where you'll come to meet and use throughout your quest colourful and lively little characters such as Whisper, Quinky and Lapoleon, all with their unique moves and skills. It will always feel fresh and slick to play because Best Fiends is being constantly updated to offer the player new levels and challenges. And in these times we're all stuck in right now, away from our friends and loved ones, it's a perfect way to stay in touch with them as you can play alongside them, sharing your progress on the leaderboard, or you can just enjoy playing it by yourself. You don't even need to have an online connection to do so. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this 5-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Best Fiends, friends without the R, Best Fiends. At first, when there was no sign of Imran back home by 5pm to head to the mosque, Imran's parents, Ismail and Habiba Vora, were at first cross with their eldest son for missing his instruction, thinking initially that Imran may have become distracted whilst making his way home from school with a friend, which was possible of course, though was something that would have been totally out of character for the conscientious boy to do. But as the minutes ticked by, which then became the hours, it soon became clear to both, and with it their concern growing, that something was very wrong here. Finally, by 9pm, long past when Imran should have been home, fed, and preparing himself for bed as it was a school night, and once all of his school friends had been contacted by Habiba to see if Imran was at the home of one of them, and the local hospitals checked to see if he'd been admitted there following an accident, had both drawn a blank, Imran's frantic parents called police and reported Imran as a missing person. It's not something I'd ever even wish to imagine that, because that must be every parent's nightmare. It really must. Alert as boy, nine, 
goes missing, screamed the headline from the Lancashire Evening Post newspaper the following day. The front page article carrying a school photograph of Imran and detailing the description of the boy down to his full attire. White school shirt and black trousers, black shoes and brown and beige anorak with a red stripe across it. The front page also carried a micro-mapped pinpointed route of the half-mile journey between his school and home that Imran would have taken that day and urged the public to come forward and report any sightings of Imran from the previous afternoon onwards. When police had been contacted the previous evening by Ismail and Habiba, hearing the circumstances and what they were told about the character of the boy, they'd wasted no time in launching an inquiry and whilst house-to-house -house inquiries in the Frenchwood area had gotten underway, even at that late hour, a full description of the boy was passed on to oncoming police shifts, with searches undertaken where possible, and a full-scale search to be launched at first light the following day. The officer in charge of the inquiry, Superintendent John Hilton, was quoted in the article as saying, It is very unusual for this boy to have not returned home from school last night. We've checked all the boy's relatives and friends and are now searching areas where he is known to play. We believe he had several dens in the local parks and we are obviously very concerned for his safety. As inquiries with residents of the local communities continued to be carried out in English, Urdu and Gujarati, overseen by an Asian detective who had been specially sent up to assist the investigating team from the Metropolitan Police. The day's classes were halted at Frenchwood CP, as Imran's friends and classmates were all spoken to by police to see if any of them knew of his possible whereabouts, though one by one this drew a blank. A major search of the Frenchwood and Avonham areas had been launched by Lancashire Police at dawn that morning, with every possible place the boy could be in the area, however small or obscure, however remote, to be covered by a large team of officers. First to be scoured were all of Imran and his friends' favoured haunts to play out in, a list of which had been gleaned from the interviews with his fellow pupils, and predominant as a favoured play area early amongst these had been Miller Park and the adjacent Avonham Park, so it was decided to focus the search upon these, and both a mounted and dog section police presence was heavy there. The search team, already large in number with officers and with extra being drafted in from divisions across the county, was joined throughout the day by friends and neighbours of the Vora family, only too willing to assist. Even Ismail and Habiba Vora were out there, desperately scouring the area for their son because you wouldn't hesitate to do whatever you could or to help in any search, would you? Bit by bit then, the entire area was combed by the search team, but with no sign of Imran, and as police patrols canvassed the area, making loudspeaker appeals in both English and Gujarati, Imran's shattered parents could only watch with growing fear in what now, accompanying the mounted and on-foot search teams, must have been the terrifying, unimaginable sight of a police underwater search team who began scouring the nearby River Ribble, looking for what that meant to the family would most likely be a body. As I said earlier, you can't even imagine it, can you? How must you be? Your fear, anxiety, dread, it must be through the bloody roof. And yet you wouldn't want to stop searching until you found something, would you? 
however late or dark it got, it must be an awful feeling to have to suspend such a search for the day. But at the end of that Friday, that's exactly what had to happen. Although a large area of the Avonham and Frenchwood community had been searched, including a vast area of both Avonham and Miller Parks, fading light and the requirement for specialist grass cutting equipment to continue looking further necessitated that the search be called off for the day to resume at first light the following morning. By now it was some 30 hours since the last sighting of Imran and as a police cordon was placed around the park, the search volunteers, and especially Imran's parents, reluctantly headed back home, each with a feeling of discomfort and dread within them. Sadly, there was good reason for these and any feelings of discomfort or dread were warranted. For two days after Imran's disappearance, when the search resumed at 5am on the morning of Saturday July the 13th, some 40 minutes later, the very worst possible discovery was made in one of the well-used children's dens in Avonham Park. A shout of, here, went up from two searchers examining a heavily overgrown wooded part of the park, near to the former tram bridge there which spans the River Ribble, an area known in the locality as the Tipping Area, a popular part of the park for children to play in. Whether the shout came from a pair of police officers or civilian volunteers, it is unestablished. What was established, sadly beyond any doubt, was that the search for Imran had come to a tragic end. Missing Boy Found Dead was the headline in that Saturday's Lancashire Evening Post. Though the article could give scarce details further than this, police were tight-lipped and issuing nothing but the briefest of circumstances concerning Imran's death to the press just after the discovery, although a press conference was scheduled for later that day, long after the edition had gone to press. When further details of Imran's death were later revealed, it drove a shockwave of horror, anger and revulsion not just through the community, but through the city, even through the country. The following contains descriptions of a crime scene that some listeners may find disturbing or distressing, so caution is advised. Now out of respect, I have sanitised the details here. I know we usually go all or nothing on the show, but I just can't with this one. I'm sure what I say will express horror enough though. Imran's body, naked from the waist down and left wearing just his muddied and dishevelled school shirt, had been found lying on his back, face up, in a wooded area thick with dense undergrowth, partially concealed under a bush, about a hundred yards from an area of the tipping area part of the park, as it was known locally, called the 49 Steps. Imran's body had very few marks of violence upon it, apart from the vicious ligature mark caused by the garrote that it was later established had been used to take the life from him, which was still visible around the boy's throat. The unknown ligature, which was not found with the body, was, from its width and clear pattern, thought to have been a shoelace. Although entirely possible it had been an item of his own clothing, the remainder of which, his shoes, underwear and anorak were found scattered around the nearby undergrowth, seemingly hurriedly discarded by his killer. As Imran was found in a state of near-total undress, 
One glance suggested that there'd been a sexual motive to the murder, a fact which was sadly, horrifyingly, confirmed at the later post-mortem. Imran had been savagely raped before being strangled. But chillingly, Imran's trousers were not with the remainder of his clothing on the floor. In a detail that was held back by police, and was only released several years later, they were found tied to the branch of a tree some six foot away. The only reason fathomable for this being was that it was some sort of macabre calling card, if you will, that had been left by his killer. Horrendous that, isn't it? Now to commit any crime against a child is monstrous. Nothing short of that word will suffice. At least no word that I would use here on the show, though I'm sure that each of you have one in mind. But to rape and then garrot a child, to then leave his clothing tied to a tree, for whatever reason, maybe as some sort of calling card. I struggle for words. It seems more abhorrently evil somehow that, doesn't it? The missing persons investigation had now turned into a murder inquiry and the following day, Detective Superintendent John Boyd, who had been placed in charge of the investigation, announced to the press, We need help in filling in the mystery hours after he left school because we are reasonably certain that he was killed on Thursday. Anybody who attacks a nine-year-old boy, sexually assaults him and then strangles him cannot be normal. You cannot get any worse than this crime. It cannot be ruled out that he will strike again. Immediately then, a massive police hunt had swung into action. As Imran's shattered family grieved, and residents of the area who knew Imran struggled to come to terms with the discovery, a team of 60 detectives were put onto the case with a very real sense of urgency. There was a vicious sex killer at large, and as Detective Superintendent Boyd had said, there was no way of guaranteeing that this killer wouldn't strike once again. School teachers across Preston urged pupils to make the journey home in groups, or the very minimum in pairs, taking that extra care where possible. Terrified parents escorted or drove their children to and from school or after school activities, fearful of leaving them alone and vulnerable and members of the frightened community demanded the police presence in the area increase to offer them more protection. In a bid to encourage and bring forward any witnesses who may have seen Imran on his final journey, police once again released an image of a youngster wearing the same clothing as Imran had last been seen alive in, hoping against hope that it would jog somebody's memory. Meanwhile, in the first of a number of heartbreaking appeals to the public, Imran's father, Ismail, pleaded with the killer of his son to come forward and give themselves up. During a press conference held only a few days after the discovery of his son's body, Ismail struggled to keep his emotions pent up, fighting back tears as he told the gathered reporters that his son was, a quote, a good boy who had never done anything wrong and who knew not to go off with strangers. Ismail continued, I have no idea who might have done this. I hope the community will help the police arrest whoever did it. I have lost my son and I don't want it to happen to anybody else. Other Asian community leaders also reached out to residents, asking anybody with information to come forward. 
Oman Munshi, a surname that with no disrespect to him, I've had a bloody sickener of reading of late, thank you, one of the senior figures of Preston's Muslim Society and a close friend of the Vora family, said at the time, It is important that this man is found. The sooner that he is caught, the better that it is for everyone. We have distributed a leaflet into the community and we are asking the members of the society to help and assist the police all that they can. I have no idea why this thing happened. Everyone is completely shattered. He was a very popular little boy and everyone is doing their best to comfort his family. To reach out to as many people as was possible, appeal posters had been issued by leaders of Clarendon Street Mosque, printed in both English and Gujarati, that read, Murder Hunt. On behalf of the society, we make this sincere plea to all residents in the area to assist the police in their investigation to find the murderer of the innocent boy Imran Vora. We request all members to cooperate fully with the police department in every possible way. If you think you have any information, no matter how trivial it may seem, please tell the police. Your cooperation is greatly appreciated. Thank you. On top of this, loudspeaker vans toured the area, broadcasting this appeal in Gujarati, Urdu and English to the local community. Police also attended the daily prayer meetings held at the mosque, interviewing the worshippers and trying to piece together information, anything to try and find a vital clue, a lead that may put them on the trail of Imran's killer. Meanwhile, the appalling grief that the killing of Imran brought had instilled residents of the multicultural community to come closer together, as the shock and disgust at the murder of an innocent young child was universal, with Preston Community Relations Officer Farouk Desai telling the Evening Post, People from all cultures and races are offering help to the family and police. White people volunteered alongside Asians in the search for one of the area's children. It's a small parish and a big family, and this has struck people very hard. Quite a statement that, and one I'm sure reflects perhaps the area and the time. Now what struck me hard about it, to borrow a phrase there, was that there would be any question that people would hesitate to offer help. I remember, and I've mentioned this on the show before, I know have, but many years ago a child went missing from the locality of where I lived. And I can never forget the sense of urgency when helping looking for him. Now he was thankfully found okay. But it's that every moment that passes until that happens. And it wouldn't matter from what cultural background, from what walk of life. This is a missing kid. And if you can look, then you bloody well drop everything to find them, don't you? Of course you do. You don't even hesitate to. The weekend after Imran's murder... Mr Desai spent several long hours working with community leaders to comfort Imran's family, especially his father Ismail, who was described as a strong-willed man who was shouldering the burden of grief felt by his family. He told how hundreds of people were expected to attend Imran's upcoming funeral to be held at Preston Cemetery, I quote, because everybody just wants to share the grief, he added. At Imran's school, Work had to continue as normal, as teachers and pupils alike reeled from the horror of his death. Such loss, in such evil circumstances, must just send an especial shudder and a fear throughout such a place, mustn't it? With the thought that it could easily have been one of them, 
like say, although it would still evoke a feeling of anger and horror, there isn't that close to home feel that would occur in an army camp, say, learning about his death. And especially as it's someone from your school, it must be frightening and heartbreaking at the same time. Days after the murder, headteacher Elaine Cowell told the Lancashire Evening Post how the shock had barely subsided, yet the staff were attempting to maintain a sense of normality, bearing in mind the other pupils. She went on. We were all numbed from disbelief, but at first it probably protected us from some of the pain. Each one of us in the staff feels as though we've had a personal loss. Every child at the school becomes a part of our lives while they're here. But now reality has set in. You have to concentrate on achieving normality in your surroundings. Meanwhile, as the investigation continued, police soon established a number of leads and possible sightings and details of two people that they wished to trace. The first of these had been the Asian man that Imran's fellow pupil had seen waiting across the road from the school gates on the afternoon he disappeared, which we mentioned earlier. But the second was a white male who had been spotted, it's described, in bushes, with an Asian boy similar in appearance to Imran, though it could not be ascertained if it was Imran or not, a week before the murder, on Thursday the 4th of July, in Miller Park, the adjacent park to where Imran's body was found. This man was described as being aged between 35 to 40 years old, 5 foot 10 inches tall, broad and muscular, with a fair complexion, thick mousy coloured hair that covered his ears, and what was described as a square puffy face, wearing light coloured upper clothing and dark trousers. The man may possibly have had a light brown, smooth coated, medium sized dog with him also, whilst the Asian boy accompanying him was aged about 10 years old wore light blue trousers. Artists' impressions of both of these men were made and were appealed with Gujarati captions printed underneath each of these and handed out on leaflets to the Asian community at their daily prayer meetings, as well as being pinned to notice boards at doctors' surgeries, community centres and libraries in the local area. But these were to no avail, bringing police to admit their sheer disappointment with the lukewarm response to the impressions which brought in less than a dozen calls in total, all of which led to dead ends. And by mid-August, with only a limited public response to the inquiry, it was clear that the murder team needed to take further action and get as much help as they could. So what did they turn to? They turned to Crime Watch UK, of course. Boom! First one of the series. Now, although Crime Watch was at that time still quite a fledgling programme, really, having been on the air for only just a year, they agreed immediately to help, and two weeks after the murder, a reconstruction of Imran's final known movements was filmed, in the hope that it may provoke a response from the programme's 13 million viewers. Because it was kind of popular and useful like that, Crime Watch was, able to appeal across the country long before the days of social media, when it was still on of course. Still, at least a useful show was sacrificed so that there would be that much more license fee to keep wank like EastEnders going or show more MasterChef than you could ever possibly bloody eat. So, not all bad, eh? Back of the net, BBC. Recognising how fledgling Crime Watch was back in 1985, Can TV Help Catch a Killer? 
asked the Lancashire Evening Post headline as the crime watch reconstruction used a lookalike schoolboy actor to reconstruct the dramatic moment that Imran had disappeared. Twenty of Imran's school friends took part in the reconstruction, recreating his final lesson, whilst friends and neighbours of the Vora family, who had assisted in the search for the tragic boy, also joined members of the Lancashire Constabulary Dog Section to reenact the search. The Crime Watch team heavily emphasised the theory that Imran may have left school that day with a man who called out to him as he hung around the front gates, as the fellow pupil who knew Imran had told police she'd seen that afternoon, though it did denote some three other possible sightings of Imran from the same day. A crying boy, wearing clothing said to have been similar to Imran's, specifically this beige and brown anorak with a red stripe, was seen by a witness at 4.05pm on Avonham Lane, some half a mile from where Imran was last seen 25 minutes earlier, though this witness lost sight of the boy as he headed towards Shepherd Street. Then, 10 minutes later, another witness noticed the boy, this time in company with a scruffy-looking man who looked to be in his 40s, somewhat further down Avonham Lane in the opposite direction to the sighting of the crying boy, heading towards Avonham Park. Fifteen minutes after this, a witness walking through the park saw and clearly remembered a small boy with a distinctive beige and brown red striped anorak walking by himself along one of the paths there. When the witness looked back, the boy was gone. The reconstruction and subsequent studio appeal also detailed a sighting of a boy who was seen running faster than anyone would normally be jogging away from Avonham Park along South Meadow Lane at about 4.15pm on the day of the murder. The boy was described as being about 15 years of age, having fair ginger hair, wearing a cream-coloured shirt, grey sweater, green slacks and white trainers. Now what made this sighting stand out in the minds of witnesses was the speed in which the boy was running and the look of fright on his face. Now the Reconstruction and Crime Watch Appeal is available for you to see, as a link is there in the episode show notes this week, thanks to Redcard74, Total Legend. And in the Reconstruction, Imran makes out to a friend of his that he is indeed waiting at the gates for someone. It's not established who, however. This theory was dramatised for the addition, with a schoolboy actor dressed identically to Imran being called to, confronted, whatever you want to call it, by the figure and seemingly walking off with him, hoping that the gamble to show this would pay off. And to be fair, the sighting was classed as the last definitive sighting of Imran, so you can understand the emphasis on this, can't you? Was this Imran's killer? The reconstruction aired in the August 1985 edition of Crime Watch UK on Thursday, August the 29th, and as viewers heard chilling as fuck Nick Ross's voice narrating the final known movements of Imran and possible sightings and lines of appeal as shown in the reconstruction, detectives in Lancashire were manning the first floor incident room overnight, just waiting for that one call that could mark a breakthrough in the tragic case. As Detective Superintendent John Boyd appeared on the show making an emotive plea for information. Now though the response to the studio was admittedly poor, Police received a tremendous response that evening back in the incident room. Crime Watch was good for that, BBC. And as a result, more than 25 new lines of inquiry were raised and followed up. 
but none of these was to prove that significant breakthrough call, and once these had been actioned and followed up to a conclusion, Imran's killer still eluded capture, and neither of the two men in the artist's impressions that had been released were ever definitively identified. In desperation, the Lancashire Evening Post, Preston Muslim Society and Preston Council pooled together and offered a reward totalling £4,000 for information leading to the arrest of Imran's killer, but there was still nothing. So pretty much once again at a stalemate, the inquiry team looked back at what they had and they had three main categories in mind, one of which they believed the killer fell into. Firstly, that the killer was a man known to Imran and the boy had willingly accompanied his killer into the park, sensing no reason to fear doing so. Secondly, because the public conveniences within the park were at the time a known cottaging area, that this was a predatory homosexual who had taken a chance and accosted, then killed Imran in a violent rage when the boy would not willingly submit to sex. And thirdly, that the boy had fallen victim to perhaps the most unthinkable, abhorrently evil, a travelling, opportunistic sex attacker. Back in the early to mid-1980s, the country had been horrified by a series of child murders, some, but not all of them, connected. Names such as Susan Maxwell, Sarah Harper, Caroline Hogg, Leonie Keating, Barry Lewis, Mark Tilsley, I could sadly go on were almost commonplace to a serious student of true crime. And you never know, we may look at some of these names in greater detail in future episodes of the show. Well, no, that's bollocks. We will. There's no may about it. So this third scenario was a very real fear at the time. Yet if you were a youngster back in the 80s, then it seemed to be a different world back then. I was younger than Imran was in 1985, and I remember being off playing far from where I lived thinking nothing of being out for hours, coming home only if you were hungry, no mobiles or anything to get in touch. And although this threat was there, because it's always been there, it seemed a different time. It's hard to explain really, and you probably only can if you're of a certain age. But sadly today, you don't let your children out of your sight hardly, do you? Most of the investigating team favoured the first choice, that Imran had known his killer and had voluntarily headed to the park with him. No screams or sounds of a struggle had been heard, which reinforced police view that this had been a surprise assault from someone the boy had trusted and totally unexpected to cause him harm. And it was thought that Imran was both good in nature and streetwise, meaning that he would not have gone off against both his parents' express wishes and his own sense of safety with a stranger. Talk from his classmates had led to two other points that suggested Imran may have been waiting to meet someone that day. Firstly, a rumour abounded that Imran had had a larger than usual amount of pocket money on him in the days leading up to his murder, a sum of at least £5, which if was true, then where had the money come from? Secondly, Imran's friends mentioned him having met an older friend who was teaching him German phrases though details of this wasn't expanded any further upon. Imran's parents denied knowing anything of anybody teaching their son German, and it wasn't something he'd used at home, but this intriguing line of inquiry could never be substantiated anything further than rumour. But it was to have a haunting ring of possibility some years later. 
Ismail Vora and his shattered family buried nine-year-old Imran, still not knowing why he died and who had killed him, seven weeks after his death. Imran's final journey had begun from the family home in James Street, where his simple teak coffin was carried somberly into the back of a waiting vehicle by relatives. According to the tradition of the Muslim faith, only males are allowed at burials, so the male mourners set off in convoy for the cemetery, whilst the women, including Imran's mother Habiba and his sisters, stayed at home in mourning. Inside the graveyard, mourners removed their shoes, faced east and stood on plastic sheeting to join in the prayers led by Imam Ali from the Preston Muslim Society. As Imran's coffin lay by a pile of stones and discarded shoes, with umbrellas, religious caps and waterproofs covering those on the makeshift prayer mat. With the opening ceremony over, it was then left to his father and relatives to carry Imran a short distance to the gated Muslim plot where he was to be interred. The pain and confusion was evident on the raw faces of each of the Vora family members who stood in that rain-swept Preston Cemetery, but it was Ismail who seemed to be shouldering the most grief. Reportedly, there were times during the service that he seemed totally bewildered by the proceedings happening around him, as if he was trying to work out why exactly he and his family were there, seemingly unable to confront the horror of Imran's death. As prayers were said at the graveside of the nine-year-old, Ismail's eyes stared blankly over the scene, his hands periodically covering his face as he sought private solace. Ismail did not cry during the service, but his grief could not be mistaken and he had to be physically helped from the cemetery. Around the grave at the rear of the cemetery stood hundreds of fellow Muslims, some who'd made the journey from as far afield as Yorkshire, even London, others who were from the close-knit Preston community, having closed their businesses or taken time off work to attend. Side by side, sharing in the grief and loss, were the Vora family neighbours, Imran's teachers and some of his classmates, local councillors and members of the investigating team from Lancashire Police. All thoughts were with the Vora family as the simple yet moving service was conducted through a loudspeaker in order to reach clearly those who were furthest from the graveside. At his graveside lay several messages and cards from his friends and classmates as well as a sealed message from the inquiry team searching for his killer. The message, attached to the wreath that had been sent in sympathy from Lancashire Constabulary, was from Detective Superintendent Boyd and his team, vowing to not stop until they had sought justice for the murdered boy. Following the widespread publicity and heightened emotion of the funeral, police hoped that more leads would now surface as a result, but in reality, the investigation was going nowhere and it was now feared that they'd encountered a wall of silence in the frightened community. By 11 weeks after the murder, Detective Superintendent Boyd voiced his fears to the Lancashire Evening Post that there was at least one member of the community who knew something about the murder, and that detectives from the inquiry team had spoken to he or she, but they'd remained tight-lipped, perhaps out of fear, or perhaps out of misguided loyalty. He explained, it may well be that somebody has been asked to tell the police a lie in relation to a dear one and a dear one's movements on the day of the murder. They might not fully realise the implications behind this and they might be protecting the killer in the mistaken belief that they are being loyal. 
Obviously, it is vital that this person should consider their position. He remained convinced that Imran knew the identity of his killer, later saying, I am sure that Imran would not go off with a total stranger. He would certainly not go off into the park with a stranger. It had to be someone he knew, and perhaps the killer strangled him after committing an indecent act, because Imran could identify him. Someone must be carrying a terrible burden, and maybe someone carrying that burden had since confided in somebody else. I would like somebody who left the area without good reason to contact us in the strictest confidence. He then paid tribute to the dedication of the investigating team, who had been working 11-hour days for the previous 11 weeks, saying, They have worked both hard and enthusiastically, and the morale is still high despite the lack of results. They all feel that the next day could bring in the initiative we so badly need. We've uncovered a number of possibilities over the weeks, but our follow-up inquiries have always frustratingly ended up eliminating them. One of the most time-consuming tasks the inquiry team had faced was trying to trace visitors to Avonham Park on the day of the murder. Only a handful of these had come forward and volunteered themselves to police, leaving officers frustrated with the pace of the investigation, and after several weeks, only some 35 people had been traced, leaving an estimated 200 other people who had been there that day remaining unidentified. Several suspects had been eliminated from the inquiry already, and identity parades containing men who matched those depicted in the released artists' impressions had proved fruitless, so with little progress on the investigation, by October 1985, a quarter of the designated officers working on the inquiry had been sent back to normal duties in their respective county divisions that they'd been drafted in from. Yet Detective Superintendent Boyd was keen to stress, emphatically, that this did not mean the investigation was being scaled down any. As the investigation continued to stall though, Muslim leaders moved quickly to stamp out the rumour mill that the closed rank community, as it was described by some, not only knew of, but had already meted out punishment to Imran's killer. The story originated in the press scenario by the good old rumour mill had it that the public shame of having a sex killer in their midst might have been too much for the Muslim faith of the city to bear, and that instead of unmasking him through arrest and the due legal process in the law courts, they had instead exiled the killer back to India, losing less face by doing so. Now this was frankly dispelled by representatives of the town's Asian community as well as police who were keen to remind the public that children of all ethnicity must be afforded the same extra protection with a child killer on the loose. Oman Munshi, the spokesperson for the Muslim Society, told the Lancashire Evening Post that unilateral action on their part was unfeasible. He added, It would be quite out of character for Muslims to hide such horrible things. Quite the reverse, in fact, we would want it out in the open. Naturally, if the killer was a Muslim, it would bring shame on us and harm our community, but that is not a strong enough reason to hide his identity. Deporting him back to India would not be an option either, that would mean taking the law into our own hands, and we simply would not do that. It also couldn't happen without the elders finding out, it would be leaked and we would put a stop to it. We are a well-disciplined people, and we accept the police role in this. 
It is important we put an end to this rumour. There is no substantiation to it at all. Local people want this killer brought to justice in the normal way. Eleven weeks after his death, Imran's family had to endure another day of pain. On what should have been the youngster's 10th birthday, instead of the planned celebrations that would have been held at the family home on James Street, the family instead offered prayers to Allah, begging for Imran's killer to be caught before he inflicted the pain and misery they were going through onto another family. Ismail told the Lancashire Evening Post, We are all still very shocked. My wife especially cannot believe it. The children miss their brother terribly. Imran is always in my thoughts, and it means everything to me that the killer is caught. The £4,000 reward posted by the Evening Post is a good idea, and I really hope it helps the police. Pupils at Imran's former school also remembered him that day, holding a prayer and a moment of silence for their former classmates before normal lessons began that morning. Elaine Cowell said later, We were aware that he would have been 10 today, and remembered him specifically for that. Meanwhile, police marked what would have been Imran's special day by issuing a photo fit of the boy who was seen running away from the scene of the murder. They also revealed that they were appealing for an anonymous caller to get back in touch with them. A woman who had contacted the incident room following the Crime Watch UK broadcast, claiming that she was living with a man who was acting suspiciously on the day of Imran's death. The woman was on the telephone for a considerable amount of time, however, gave false identities for herself and her boyfriend. Detective Superintendent Boyd said, If it was a hoax, it was certainly an elaborate one, because she was on the phone for quite some time. Now by this time, it was almost three months since Imran's murder, and information flowing into the Preston incident room had dried up completely with detectives now left with nothing more than to sift through the already cold ashes that the case had become. They began by spending another full seven days at Frenchwood Primary School, speaking again to all 230 pupils who attended there, and taking statements from each for comparisons, attempting to ascertain as to whether the boy had perhaps confided in someone, anyone, that he had a secret meeting with a stranger that day. They were also attempting to establish this rumour that Imran had had an extra £5 in his pocket only the day before the murder, pondering how he'd arrived at such a sum of money and wondering had it been given to him for some sort of purpose, perhaps as a reward for something. I don't think I really need to say any more there, do I? But both of these lines of inquiry drew a blank and these theories could not be established. The team had also investigated possible links to other unsolved child killings around the UK, including the notorious deaths of Barry Lewis and Jason Swift the previous year. Tales that we shall meet possibly, if not later on this series, then certainly in the next one. But it was ultimately concluded that Imran's death was the work of an isolated killer. The calling card of the trousers tied to the tree branch was very unique and thought to be the mark of a specific offender. Detective Superintendent Boyd said at the time, The public response, which was excellent originally, has now dwindled to virtually nothing, but we are not critical of this because the murder happened almost three months ago. There was, sadly, 
to be no breakthrough and over time the incident room was scaled further down and then Imran's case was eventually marked active with regular reviews. On the five-year anniversary of his son's death, Ismail Vora told the Lancashire Evening Post that he still held out hope that his son's killer would one day be brought to justice. The pain still clearly visible in his eyes, he explained how his heart was still broken, saying, Why Imran? Why us? I just don't know. I hurt inside. Little things remind me of what happened. Parents should keep their eyes on the children. I don't want other parents to go through what I, my wife and children have gone through. He would have been 15 in October. When I see groups of children his age, I think about him. Since it happened, we've tried to rebuild our lives, but we will never forget Imran. He added that the Vora family found it far too painful to keep photographs of the smiling youngster up at home, it being just too upsetting for them to do so, adding, Someone should have been brought to justice. By that time retired, former Detective Superintendent Boyd also told the Post that he still believed Imran's killer was from the Asian community of the area, saying, On that day, Imran gave the impression that he had a secret, that he was going to see someone. I reckon there was a very good chance that this was the man we were after, because he did not come forward, and Imran would not have gone off with a white man. However, it was to be another 11 years, in 2001, 16 years after Imran's death, that detectives announced the decision to launch a cold case review into Imran's murder. Using advancements in technology to rescreen the existing evidence from the 1985 investigation forensically, they hoped this would open up new avenues of investigation to police that would ultimately lead them to Imran's killer. The officer leading the 2001 inquiry team, Detective Superintendent Mick Turner, who as a junior officer had been one of those who had taken part in the original search for Imran, told the Lancashire Evening Post that about a dozen witnesses, many of whom were children at the time of the original inquiry, would be re-interviewed by police as part of the inquiry in a hope this would bring fresh recollection and information. House-to-house -house inquiries in the original canvassed areas would also take place, hoping to catch some residents who remained living there all those years later. Though he admitted that police had no active leads, Detective Superintendent Turner said, His death remains at the forefront of the minds of his family and the community. While this murder remains unsolved, the investigation is not closed. We are currently reviewing certain aspects of the initial inquiry, as people may have information they did not feel confident to give at the time, but I must stress, there is no significant new information at this time. We are also speaking to forensic scientists who were involved at the time to see if their discoveries have moved on, but we don't want to get everyone's hopes up by thinking we have a magic new piece of evidence. We don't. It is still important to everybody who was around in Preston at the time. We hope to bring some resolution for the family who've had to live with this for all these years. There are plenty of police officers who worked on it who are still working, myself included. We know that the community are behind us, and nobody wants there to be a child killer walking free. Ismail and his family took some heart from this, telling the Post, 
For 16 years, our family has had to face up to the fact that no one has been caught. It still affects us every day, and none of the family has forgotten Imran. It is very important to me that someone is caught for this. We are pleased the police are going to look at it again, and we just hope it leads to someone being caught. We will be pleased if this leads to justice. We think about him with every day that passes. I still remember him as the lovely son he was. He was popular and did well at school. His teacher at school always had good words for him. He was a good boy. But by the following year, this review of re-interviewing witnesses had so far yielded very little. But then, there was a revelation. An analysis of a tiny stain of semen found on Imran's trousers had been able to give a forensic team, led by Dr John David, a partial DNA profile of his killer for the first time, the forensic capability having arrived by that time to do so. Detective Superintendent Turner explained, 900 pieces of possible evidence have been examined and DNA has been removed. As the next part of the inquiry, we want to mouth swab 90 members of the public, although these people are not necessarily suspects. For instance, some of these people were members of the community who helped set up a search team for Imran after he went missing, and we have to rule everybody out to narrow it down, including Imran's family and friends. The screening techniques are very sensitive, and we have to rule out any possibilities that the evidence is contaminated. Now this meant that anybody from the investigative side who had worked on the original inquiry in 1985, from police officers to forensic scientists, had to be eliminated also, pushing the number of people requiring testing up to more than 200, with only half of these to be swabbed being Asian males. There were also several people who would require testing that had died since the initial inquiry, and although the possibility of exhuming the remains of each where possible was weighed up, Ultimately, it was just post-mortem samples that were used to cross-check where possible. The National Crime Faculty and criminal profilers were also brought in to maximise any new information brought in through any freshly unearthed witness testimony and forensic evidence. Now this did reportedly lead to the arrest of an unnamed 40-year-old Asian man in London who was taken to Preston Police Headquarters and questioned for three days though he was later exonerated after undergoing DNA testing and found to be a negative match for the sample. So now the hunt went nationwide, and some 800 men, either known sex offenders or who were connected to the original investigation, from all across the UK, varying in age range from those in their 40s to their 80s, now faced DNA testing. The evidential DNA recovered from Imran's murder was matched against that of unsolved crimes across the country, making use of the Catchum database of UK murders, the acronym for Centralised Analytical Team Collating Homicide Expertise Management, which is concerned with child homicide in the UK from 1960 onwards. And police also liaised with other forces, convinced that Imran's killer may have struck elsewhere across the country. Detectives then decided to reconstruct Imran's death for a second time, again for a televised appeal, this time on Granada TV's regional crime file programme. And the re-reconstruction, if that's even a bloody word, once again utilised members of the initial search party 
a reenactment 17 years later that brought back to the surface barely buried emotions for many. 37-year-old Ahmed Bayat, one of the Vora family neighbours who had taken part in the initial search, told how it brought back memories of the heartbreak and fear felt by the community in 1985, saying, It was horrific. Other people with us were quite distraught at the time. We knew he used to play in dens, so at first we thought he'd gone walking about and had hidden in a den, but as time went by, we realised he couldn't stay out all night. The weather was terrible. Another who had originally assisted, Bashir Ahmed, told the Post, It feels a bit weird coming back here, because we've not been in this area of the park since then, but we'll do anything to catch the killer. Meanwhile, police were meticulously sifting through some 200 potential DNA matches that had been obtained, as well as the fresh boxes of notes and statements, and entering the lot onto the Holmes database entry for Imran's murder, and in December 2002, now made the decision to reveal publicly as part of it, a key piece of evidence which had until that time been kept back from release, the calling card of Imran's trousers tied to the tree branch above his body, which as you can imagine, horrified the community even further. Now there were several theories as to why Imran's killer had done this. Many believed it was used as a marker, a calling card or a trophy, perhaps personalising the murder, whilst another theory was that Imran's killer had felt some remorse after the crime and so had hung the trousers up in the tree so that perhaps Imran's body would be found quickly. As the area was overgrown at the time, perhaps the trousers were some sort of macabre beacon as to what was hidden in the dense undergrowth. The killer may also have been sensitive to Imran's cultural background, as Islamic religion dictates that bodies should be buried as soon as possibly can be, preferably within 24 hours, with Friday being considered a holy day, and so a good day to bury your dead. Imran went missing on a Thursday, but wasn't found until Saturday. When the calling card... I'm going to refer to it as that because this isn't a person with remorse at all who can rape and garrot a child. No remorse there whatsoever, is there? When this calling card was revealed, it prompted another appeal on Crime Watch, which brought with it another 30 calls and did eliminate one person of interest from the original appeal 17 years beforehand. The scared-looking youth seen running away from the park came forward and was eliminated from the inquiry on the basis of his DNA. But Imran's killer still wasn't found as a result of this. In May 2003, a criminal profile of Imran's killer was drawn up by Professor Carl Roberts, a behavioural scientist tenured at Teesside University, who estimated that Imran's killer was still likely to be living within the local community, at the very minimal had decent local knowledge, and was an active paedophile, possibly having suffered childhood sexual abuse himself, whose primary sexual interest was male children, possibly one who lay low, but was an opportunist predator whose approach would be to befriend and gain trust before abusing. He was thought to have likely befriended Imran in this way in the days, possibly even weeks before the murder, and although someone considered to be of low self-esteem and average intelligence, had shown a level of maturity 
reasonable self-control and a degree of planning in the murder, which suggested a killer that at the time of Imran's death was thought to have been at his youngest in his late 20s to early 30s. This wouldn't be someone with fantastic social skills or a large range of friends, both then or now. This was someone who focused upon children because they were non-threatening to him, finding it easy to talk to them. Equally, the killer was likely to be an underachiever educationally and socially, probably if employed not in a high-status occupation and one whose behaviour would have been noticeable. For example, he may have been anxious after the murder and would be again following the reappeal, but he was thought highly likely to have offended before he killed Imran and following the murder, and any previous offences this man had come to police attention for would likely be related to children. Pretty much run-of-the-mill state the obvious stuff there, I thought, and it did bugger all to find Imran's killer, really. But then, in September 2009, there came a breakthrough of a different kind. After an unnamed person, who it was has never been established or revealed, was arrested for a serious offence, his or her DNA was added to the National DNA Database and it provided a close hit to the sample that had been obtained from Imran's killer. So close, the police knew they were looking for a familial match. Further inquiries led police to a man named Robert David Morley, a father of seven children who it was established, although a native of the London area, had at points lived all across the country. And in 1985, lived in Lancaster House in Preston, only a few hundred yards from James Street, where Imran and his family lived. In an interview with BBC Radio Lancashire, Detective Chief Superintendent Graham Gardner, head of crime for Lancashire Police, said, Many detectives and scientists have worked tirelessly on this very sad case for many years. The result is as a consequence of that dedication and of advances in forensic science which have changed considerably. We've known from 2002 we've had a part profile of the killer from the scene. In six years, we've tested 1,400 men against that sample. There's been further advances, such as familial DNA, which allows us to arrive at an offender through family members. A relative of Morley's put on the database in 2006 had a similar match to the DNA we had. After further inquiries, it transpired that Morley had lived in Preston at the time of Imran's murder. The findings clearly point to the fact that Robert David Morley is responsible for Imran's death and we are now endeavouring to find out more about his life in Preston. I would be interested to hear from anyone who knew Robert Morley known as Bob, in or around 1985 in Preston. Morley doesn't stand on the national database because he died, but we were able to identify him through family members. Yes, there were to be no charges raised whatsoever, because Robert Morley, who it was confirmed by scientists that there was a 1 in 1 billion chance of the killer who left the DNA sample on Imran's trousers being anyone other than, had died of lung cancer in a Stansted hospital 12 years before, in 1997. Biopsies taken at the time of his death that had been retained were examined and confirmed the DNA match beyond any doubt. 
the only time that you could ever feel gutted that a child killer had died without facing justice for his monstrous crime. Plotting a picture of Morley's life then, it emerged that he had been born in 1935 in the Islington area of London and had been evacuated to the Lancashire area as a child during the Second World War. He first came to police attention at age 14 when he was arrested for indecent exposure, followed by further arrests for theft which sent him to an approved school in 1951. Two years later, he joined the army as a postal clerk where from 1955 he was for several years stationed out in Germany and it was here that he met his first wife, a German national who taught her husband over years how to speak fluent German. Although the marriage produced several children, Morley had fathered six children by 1965. It was not a happy marriage, punctuated with his heavy drinking, his quick to dish out violence to his wife and children, and his frequent brushes with the law. By the time he left the army in 1962, Morley had appeared before magistrates on at least three occasions for theft of checkbooks and breaking into gas meters for the contents, and of receiving stolen goods, each time escaping with a fine. Splitting with his first wife not long after, Morley adopted a nomadic lifestyle roaming around the country and in the early 1970s, back in London, met his second wife who he fathered another child with. But the same delightful character traits as before soon surfaced, along with a controlling, sexually aggressive nature and by 1979, his wife could stand no more and his second marriage had come to an end. From hereafter, there were several periods in Morley's life where he dropped off the radar, possibly spending some time on the streets as he'd lapsed into alcoholism. But at least in 1979 he could be pinpointed, and he had made his way back to the Lancashire area that he'd been so captivated with as a boy. Here he spent the next nine years, drifting from casual job to casual job and from woman to woman, all the time gaining an increasing string of convictions for theft, spending time living in the Rossendale area before moving to Accrington in 1981 and then later Preston, where in 1983 he got himself accommodation in a flat in a tower block, Lancaster House, in the Avonham area of the city. He was living here until 1988, just a few hundred yards from the murder scene. Yet police said they had no previous evidence linking him to the young boy's murder. It is not even reported if Morley was ever even spoken to at the time of the initial investigation, though you'd have to think that he must have been. It's pretty lax if he lives that close, and he hasn't been, isn't it? Detective Chief Superintendent Gardner said, He's a petty criminal with a string of convictions for things like check forgery, but hasn't committed any similar offences as far as we know. We are starting to build a picture of a heavy drinker, an aggressive, controlling character and a womanizer, but he doesn't present as a predatory paedophile. His ex-wife viewed him as a secretive man, sometimes not knowing what job he was doing. Someone who could stay under the radar. Details of Imran's killer were revealed on Crime Watch UK in a feature about the case in November 2009, with presenter Matthew Amroliwala telling viewers of the investigation and the subsequent DNA breakthrough that had led police to his killer, Robert Morley. 
although too late for him to face justice for his crimes. He also suggested to viewers that police were, I quote, absolutely convinced that there are more victims of Morley out there, perhaps before or after Imran, and how that Morley's DNA was now being examined against other unsolved crimes from across the country, where forensic evidence is still available and in storage, although no further reports are available linking him to any of these. Detective Chief Superintendent Gardner added at the end of the feature, He was a normal little boy going about his business and playing in the park, which many little boys do. His death has haunted his family for many years. Throughout the investigation, they've acted with a great deal of humility and conducted themselves with great dignity in the most distressing circumstances. And now, I hope they can move on. Imran's relatives have had a very long journey and did not know how to take it. They are religious people and believe that his killer would have been punished in heaven. I'm very grateful for their continuing support to my investigations and I hope that this breakthrough helps them with their grieving process. There's no happy ending to this story, but in some ways it does bring some conclusion to them. I would have liked to have seen this man brought to justice in Crown Court. We still don't know the whole truth about Robert Morley's life. Until detectives have the complete picture, we will never know who else might have suffered in the way little Imran did. Imran may not have been the only child, who suffered at his hands. And you have to think that he sadly wasn't, don't you? So a heart-wrenching tale this time around, I'm sure you'll agree, and one that not only horrifies, but raises several questions with it. And if it does you, like it did me when I researched it, then it angered me, because Morley can never face justice from beyond the grave. And essentially, he got away with murder. And that doesn't sit right, does it? My heart went out to the Vora family throughout it. You can surely never get used to the loss of a child in any circumstance, but to lose one in such horrific ones, with the killer still out there somewhere, you can't even imagine, can you? And to then discover the identity of the killer finally, albeit almost a quarter of a century later, only to find that he can never face justice. Heartbreaking, infuriating, no other words will do there. A level of closure perhaps, but certainly not the justice the family so sought. There's very little to research about Robert Morley. Indeed, police are still likely attempting to build up a picture of him, which is difficult because as we've said, this is an individual with a nomadic lifestyle who went missing for large periods of his life. This is also someone who was, although a violent and sadistic one, was a cautious predator, managing to keep his paedophilia under the radar and never reportedly facing any charges or gaining any criminal convictions for anything other than theft. But one, who at least in 1985 anyway, made the jump to sex killer. So has Morley committed other offences that have never been laid at his door? I would suggest most certainly. I don't believe this is someone who, so shocked by his actions in the death of Imran, refrained from ever offending again. He was so hard-faced he even remained living just a few hundred yards away for another three years following the murder. Then there's this 12-year period from Imran's death to Morley's death, and we know that for the latter years of his life, he'd settled down in the Essex area. But what about before that, or all of the times where he can't be pinpointed in his life? 
Who knows where he was and what he's done. Two points of information jump out from the initial 1985 investigation. Two snippets that ring chillingly true to me that suggest Morley had befriended, indeed groomed Imran beforehand. There's the sighting of a boy thought to be Imran heading towards Avonham Park on the afternoon of the murder in company with a scruffy man thought to be in his 40s, which would kind of fit the appearance of Robert Morley and he was 49 years old when he raped and killed Imran. And there was the rumour that police could never establish that someone was teaching Imran German phrases. Robert Morley could speak fluent German. Food for thought, eh? Now there needs to be no question about Morley's guilt. The forensics are there to prove that. But the questions that research in this case raised to me were, out of all the sightings we've mentioned here of Imran, or what was thought to be him on the fateful day, which are accurate? What was the sequence of events that led to his death? Had Morley befriended and groomed him beforehand? How did nobody hear or see anything in the park that day? And, and this still chills me thinking about it, what is the significance of Imran's trousers being tied to that tree? Questions that frustratingly can never be answered. What do you guys think? Any crime against children particularly horrifies me, and this one did, no question. I found it a dreadfully sad crime. And should the message ever get back to them, my deepest condolences go out to the Vora family for the loss of Imran. It is scant comfort to them, I'm sure, but I hope they can take at least some solace in the fact that Morley can now never harm another person. And whilst the spectre of Morley does loom over the tale, I hope from it you remember first and foremost the talented and well-liked creative boy, sports mad, someone you wanted to be friends with, who did nothing, nothing except being there with a predator ready to strike. Please keep your children close. I would welcome as always any thoughts and feedback that you have concerning the episode Every Parent's Nightmare. Which as ever, there is an episode thread up and running in the show's Facebook discussion group for you to do so. Or you can have a vent, offer your theories, feedback, whatever, through any of the show's social media links. Like a polar bear trying to pass himself off in a giraffe-only social club, I'm not hard to find at all, me. And I'll always get back to you should you get in touch. I look forward to it. With that, I'll close here now and crack on with another tale for your ears, which will be coming back to you in a couple of weeks' time this time. Busy days in the true crime enthusiast camp and all that. In the meantime, look out for bonus Patreon episode 38, which is coming to you before the end of the month if you're a supporter. And I hope you can all tune in on March the 4th at 7.30pm UK time to Crowdcast, where I'll be chatting to Adam, host of the UK True Crime podcast, about all manner of stuff, and then hopefully to some of you guys also. Stay tuned for links to do so. With that, like milk that's been left out of the fridge for days, I'm off, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you lovely folks all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Thanks very much for joining me, take care all, and goodbye for now.